As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bible, and uh, you can open up to the book of Nahum. Um, you may be struggling to find Nahum. That's okay. Um, it's, a, it's a minor prophet. Um, it is in the Old Testament, and uh, you'll find it kind of in that area around um, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Jonah. Just kind of keep rolling through there. You'll get to Nahum. Now, it is a short book, so again, you can kind of uh, kind of go right past it. If you get to Habakkuk, then you've gone a little bit too far. If you're in the New Testament, definitely too far. Um, it's a minor prophet, and, and the reason it's called a minor prophet isn't because it is um, a minor in terms of its importance. It's because it's minor in terms of its relative size to some of the other prophets, the major prophets in particular in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, larger in, in page number, in page count, and in word count. Uh, the minor prophets are generally much smaller, and that's why it fits well into the series that we are doing throughout this summer. Uh, we've, we've called it Postcard Prophets and Epistles, and the idea, again, is that these are simply smaller books that maybe get less attention, and, um, and they're small enough to fit on the, on the back of a postcard. So we thought it was a fitting kind of time to go through some of these smaller books, and we're going to go through the book of Nahum, all three chapters um, this morning, and get uh, the big picture and drill down on some of the finer details and trust that the Lord will bless us. Now, um, what's interesting is if you know anything about the book of Nahum, and maybe it's been a while since you read it, one of the things that strikes you when you read the book of Nahum is it is incredibly heavy in terms of its content. I mean, it is penetrating, it is powerful, but it is very much so a book of judgment. And you say, well, why are we doing a book of judgment? We just came out of Philemon, okay? We spent a lot of time on forgiveness and grace and restoration. We figured it's time to just look at the other end of that pendulum. I'm just kidding. Um, it, the reality is, listen, the Bible um, has a lot to say about forgiveness and salvation and grace, but what's often misunderstood is it does so in the context of judgment, it's important to understand how judgment works in the mind of God and in the Word of God. The Word of God is filled with words of judgment, books that are laced with judgment. The gospel itself reminds us of judgment. So we're moving this morning from a study on forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration to really, in one sense, a study on God's wrath and God's judgment. Now, it's important to understand that Nineveh is the city being spoken of here. It's in the very first verse, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. About 150 years before this, God sent them another prophet, one you are very familiar with, likely, a man named Jonah. The book of Jonah reminds us and instructs us on how God wanted to deal with this capital city. It tells us a lot about this capital city of Nineveh. They were a wicked people. They had rebelled against God. And God sends Jonah, this reluctant prophet, to spread a message of grace and forgiveness. He sends Jonah, who doesn't want to go, but is compelled by God to go. You know the story. And as he goes, he walks through the city, marches through the city, three days journey. This is how big this city is. It is massive in its scope. It is massive in its wickedness. And he preaches a message of God's judgment that is coming, and he calls them to repent, and that's exactly what they do. They repent, from the least of them to the greatest, in dust and ashes. But that was 150 years ago. And this is a new generation of people. Assyria has grown in their power. They have grown in their wickedness and in their violence. 
They have conquered and conquered and conquered. And at this point, they will not repent. God then sends this prophet named Nahum. And his message is a scathing rebuke. It is a detailed prophecy of the coming destruction of this great city. But we need to see that it is more than just a book of judgment. You see, this book isn't predominantly written to the city of Nineveh. It is written about the city of Nineveh. It is in actuality written as a book of comfort for God's people who have been oppressed by this great city. And the idea of comfort fits the theme of this book very well. For Nahum, he certainly did comfort his people of Judah, God's people, by prophesying the downfall of Nineveh. He told them, listen, your enemies will not prevail. Your enemies are not greater or more powerful than God. This people will not produce the end of God's people. Nahum was a prophet of the Lord who preached to the southern kingdom of Judah. There's not much known about him. In fact, we don't even really know where this place that he's referred to as being from is truly from, where he truly is from. We don't know where it is. We haven't been able to locate it. Archaeologists haven't, not me personally. I don't, I don't do that. We know this. He is a relatively obscure prophet who lived in the 7th century BC under Assyrian domination. And here what we see is he is reminding his people, listen, through this message of judgment, that God is for his people. And that's a powerful message for you and I to consider this morning because as we look at the world around us, and sometimes we look at the circumstances in our own lives, we are compelled sometimes to ask this simple question. It really seems like everything is against me. It really seems like Satan is prevailing. It really seems like the world system is winning against God. And we can be compelled to ask this question, is God really for us? Is God really for his people? And and it's harder to ask that question in our context because right now the church in North America has it so easy. But believe me, there are people around the world in the church of Jesus Christ who maybe are considering this very question because they are living in a place of oppression and persecution, and it seems like the church is being crushed and squeezed under the powerful grip of Satan. And through this book, I want you to see what I believe is so helpful regardless of the context that we're living in, because we all face difficulties in this life. Through this book, we need to see that God is for us. God is for us because, first, the person of God demands it. Let's look at the first chapter in a a few verses here. Here's what the Word of God says. Beginning in verse 2, it says this, The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. 
But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Stop there for a moment. As Nahum is comforting and encouraging the people of God who are under the great oppression of the Assyrian Empire, his first call is for them to come back to the character of God, to consider who God is, to be reminded of the person of God, and to know that because God is who he says he is, he will do what he says he will do. And in this first section, these first eight verses really is the key to unlocking this entire book because the rest of this book, I'm telling you right now, it is going to feel very weighty. The rest of this book is going to unleash a torrent of judgment upon this great city of Nineveh. So it's important that we grasp this at the beginning so we can understand how God's judgment is intended to work and how it actually functions to comfort his people. Now, right here, we have the key to understanding not only this book, but actually one of the great uh, dilemmas that people face when they encounter the Old Testament. Um, There's a a lot of people who struggle to reconcile the love of God and the wrath of God. Isn't that true? You hear people wrestle with this all the time. Maybe some of you even here wrestle with this in your own life. How can we say that God is truly loving, and yet we look at the Bible and we see such displays of wrath and judgment? It's a fair question, and it's actually an important question to wrestle with. There is an actual movement among evangelicals today calling for the church to, um, quote-unquote, unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. In other words, there's a group of people who call themselves Christians who look at the Bible, and they can't reconcile God's love and God's wrath, and so what they, they do is this. They create this dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. You hear people do this, right? Sometimes you hear well-meaning Christians do this. You say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of what? And you never heard of this? Wrath, right? He's a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament, he's a God of what? Love and grace as if the God of the Bible somehow changes who he is. Can you just consider how ridiculous that is for a minute? That's the equivalent of saying something as foolish as this. Well, you know what? You just need to unhitch your lower half of your body from the upper half of the body. The, the reality is, is one half can't survive without the other. They're, they're dependent upon each other. They work together. They're not opposing each other. They're not in conflict with each other. They work perfectly together. They complement each other. And that's exactly what we see with the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, this idea of unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament is fraught with errors, and it ultimately, fundamentally misunderstands the very character and nature of God. The Bible makes it very clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Okay, here's how you can kind of understand that just in a summary fashion. God is the same in his purposes, in his promises, and in his person, okay? God is the same in his purposes, and his promises, and his person. God will change sometimes the way he functions or delivers a message. God will give the appearance of changing his mind, but in reality, as we see through the Bible, the Bible tells a story of God's purposes and his plan and ultimately his person who never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You say, why, why do we need to embrace that? Here, here's the reality. Listen, this is exactly what the Israelites in the days of Nahum were banking on. God is the same. He does not change. 
He's going to remain faithful to who he is. And that's what God is telling them in the very opening pages of this book. In fact, what's so fascinating is is what God describes about himself here, it actually may sound familiar to you. Have you you kind of heard this language before? I, I hope so, because this is the way that God often describes himself in the Old Testament. This is exactly how he describes himself in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. You remember when Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. God says, well, I'm going to tuck you in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to pass before you. And when God passes before him, God doesn't just show him his glory. He tells him his glory by revealing to him exactly who he is. He says, Moses, this is who I am. And my glory cannot be disconnected from who I am. It's fascinating here that the first thing we read is that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. And these are strong statements. And yet, it's so important to understand who God reveals himself to be. You see, wrath and love are not incompatible. They are complementary. That's why you get angry when somebody hurts your kids, isn't it? You see, anger is often the byproduct of love. And Nahum reminds us of God's love by reminding us of God's anger against sin and against sinners. See, why why does he do that? Listen, at this point, historically, um, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, had fallen to Assyria. They'd been dragged off into captivity, but the southern kingdom, Judah, that's who Nahum is writing to. This southern kingdom, a small group, um, one of the tribes of Israel, a partial tribe added in, they have survived, but they've survived as a, as a vassal state. They pay tribute to the Assyrians. They're really under their rule in some ways. They're under the thumb of the Assyrians. They haven't been fully conquered yet. But it's here, under the thumb of the Assyrians, that the message of God for God's people is so desperately needed. You see, it may look hopeless. And for them, certainly, that's the way it felt. It felt like they were never going to get out of this oppression underneath the thumb of the Assyrians. And God is saying, don't forget who I am. I am for you. It's a powerful reminder for us, listen, that when everything seems like it's out of control in our life, when circumstances are unraveling around us, when relationships are breaking down, when life just simply seems like it's falling apart, we can be assured when we look at the character of God that our God is for us. But we must be clear on one thing, and this is where a lot of people um, miss why God is for us. Listen, listen, God is for us because God is for God, okay? If you don't walk out of here with anything else, that right there, listen, that right there is worth the price of admission, okay? You're like, I didn't give offering today. That's okay. It's worth it to be here. Listen, God is for us, not because of something special in us. Okay, this is the fundamental mistake a lot of people make. Well, look at me. I I must be worthwhile for God, right? I must be something so valuable and precious. Now, listen, we are precious to God. We are valuable to God. But don't miss this. God's priority is his own glory. God is for us because he is ultimately for himself. That's what the Bible teaches through and through. And because God is for God, he is then for his people. 
You see, what's at stake when God's people are oppressed? What's at stake when God's people are persecuted? What's at stake when God's people are tempted, listen, to flee and to be unfaithful? What's at stake in all of that? Here's the answer, God's glory, God's glory. That's what's at stake and that is what God is consumed with. I I was reading this morning just devotionally uh, a book by John Piper, it's called Reading the Bible Supernaturally and it struck me again in a fresh way, in such a helpful way how he describes this. He goes to Isaiah chapter six, you know the familiar scene where Isaiah gets this vision and he says this, Isaiah sees the Lord in, in, in his temple and his glory, train of his robe fills the temple with glory and here's what the angels sing, right? Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his what? Glory. He asks this question, this is, I never thought, he says, he says, the angels say, holy, holy, holy. Why doesn't he say the whole earth is filled with his holiness? You think about that? The reason is because God's glory is deeply connected with God's holiness. Now, now holiness is sometimes described as God being separate from sin, but that's actually a very minor reality. That actually only makes sense in a fallen world where there is sin to be separate from, right? God was holy long before he ever created the world, amen? Okay, so it can't mean just being separate from sin. It actually, at his very heart, means something much more profound than that. It means fully devoted to, okay? This is so important to grasp. God's holiness means that he is fully devoted in his entirety to himself, to his perfection, to his beauty, to his majesty. That's why when he is holy, 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 the world is filled with his glory. Listen, here's what it means. His glory is a display of his total devotion to himself. You see, the world was created so that God would get glory. You were created so that God would get glory and you get to enjoy his glory, which is the greatest thing a human can enjoy. Yet the problem that we see in Nahum is that humanity has constantly rejected God's glory, has not given God glory. And so God says here that he is a jealous God who will avenge, that there is wrath being stored up. Why? Because God is jealous for his own glory. In verse three, we're reminded that though he is jealous for his glory, though his wrath abides against his enemies, listen, the Lord is slow to anger. What an important statement. There is patience in God, there is long suffering. The existence of Assyria, even at this point of Nahum writing, is evidence of that. But I just wanna encourage you, sometimes we look at God's patience and we can be sadly mistaken about what that means. Never mistake God's patience for his indifference towards your sin. Okay, just because somebody or you haven't experienced the consequences of your sin now doesn't mean you won't in the future. The rest of the language that he uses here in these next verses, he rebukes the sea, he makes it dry, he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Caramel wither and the bloom of Lebanon withers. He's, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, everything that seems to provide life and does in an earthly sense, these places he mentions, Bashan and Carmel, are places that were lush with, with flourishing vegetation. They were places that seemed to produce uh, manifold, listen, fruitfulness and hear what God is saying. Listen, in an instant, what seems to be Productive, what seems to be flourishing can be struck out entirely. 
The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. You see, this is all judgment language. He says, listen, God is patient, but that patience can run out. It is a heavy, heavy book to consider. But with an overflowing flood, verse 8 says, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Again, he's drawing back the imagery of the flood that wiped out all the wickedness from the earth. Listen, God can wipe everything out in an instant, in a moment in time. Look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? So what's the answer? Who, who can stand that? Who can do that? The answer is so obvious, isn't it? Nobody. Nobody can, can withstand the anger and wrath of God. Nobody could withstand that. You see, right out the gates, Nahum is calling God's people to be reminded that God is for him by reflecting on the very person and character of God. And what he is reminding us this morning is the same thing that he was reminding them of all the way back then. Listen, God is for God. God is committed to himself. God desires us then to be most committed to him for our good. Listen, believer, follower of Jesus Christ, before you can know that God is for you, you have one question to answer. Are you for God? Are you for God? Are you for God's glory or are you for your glory? This is how you know you're actually one of God's people. I'm not, I'm not just kind of buying into the gospel for some side benefits to me. There's way too many people, maybe even in this room, who believe the gospel because of the benefits they get from it. It's going to make my life better. It's going to change everything for the good. I'll become happy, healthy, and wealthy. And listen, some of those things may or may not be true, but the reality is they haven't considered who they're actually for. They haven't turned and looked at God and said, God, I am no longer for myself and for my glory. I am for you and for your glory. So let me ask you this morning, what rivals your allegiance to God? This is important for God's people to ask of themselves because we drift back into this. What rivals your allegiance for God? Now, you have to understand that this likely was a temptation for the people of Judah. And God is calling them back. He's pulling their hearts back to him to say, hey, don't be like them. Keep trusting in me. Keep your allegiance for me alone. And let me encourage you, this is something worth praying about this morning, even as we take the Lord's table a little later on. Right now, begin asking that, God, where is my allegiance shifted away from you towards something else? And now is the time to start praying that and to start destroying the idols of the heart, tearing down the altars that you may have set up for worship of some other God of your own choosing and making. But I love this in verse 7. Did you catch the, the, the glimmer of hope here? The comfort, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. You see, those who take refuge in him are those that God is for. So take rest and refuge in your God, knowing that he is for you, and nothing can then stand against you. That's what God is driving home. Secondly, note this, the plan of God requires it. We know that God is for us because the plan of God requires it. God has always promised to make his name great among the nations, and he promised to do so through a people. Verse 9 uh, picks this up. Look at what it says. Why, or what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. 
For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. You see, these nations are not for God. In fact, they have set themselves up against God. They have taunted God. They have mocked God. Now, it's helpful to understand that there is a bigger picture here of what's going on. It's helpful to understand a bit of the the history and the context that this book was written in. This would have been so familiar to the people back then. They would have had a very keen awareness of the history that they had gone through, especially this statement, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now, for sure, this defies the current king of Assyria, but there is this pointing back to a previous king. And this would have been so familiar. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you've read through 2 Kings, maybe chapters 18 and 19, a ring a bell when it comes to the Assyrian king, uh, maybe a particular king named Sennacherib. You see, Assyria uh, definitely had plotted evil against the Lord in the past. About a hundred years earlier, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he's the one who actually established Nineveh as the Um, key city in Assyria and built it up. This man, Sennacherib, this king, he laid siege to the people of God. He challenged the Lord. In fact, when he laid siege to the people of God, he actually mocked their God. He told the people of God, you have no business trusting in this God. I mean, where is your God now? Look at what we've done already to every city that's come before you. We have sieged them. We have destroyed them. Where were their gods? He mocks the God of Israel and it is the last thing he did. It led to his utter demise and destruction. If you read the story, I mean, God, God will not be mocked. He plans to protect and preserve his people. So here's what he does to demonstrate that a hundred years before. Here's this king laying siege. He's about to storm through the city and destroy it. God, in the middle of the night, sends the angel of the Lord who slays 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And Sennacherib wakes up in the morning, sees his defeat, walks home. He rebuilds the city of Nineveh. He makes it something great. And then, listen, he goes into the temple of his God, whom he serves and worships. And he is killed by his own two sons. How ironic is that? And what he says here is, Pay attention to your history, Nineveh. You will not have a chance to oppose me another time. My plan is to wipe you out, he says, and I am going to do so swiftly and definitively. It's foretold, by the way, that that, like how swift and definitive, it's foretold in verse 10 with this imagery. They're like entangled thorns, drunkards, they're consumed like stubble. Can you just kind of picture this? He says, listen, I'm going to tear you out like your thorns in a garden. You're going to be burned up like your stubble or, or chaff. You will be weak and confused like a bunch of drunkards stumbling around. And look at verses 12 and 13. He says, Thus says the Lord, 
Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, he's speaking now right here in this verse to Judah. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. You see, God had afflicted his people by the rod of Assyria. And now he would save them from the jaws of the enemy. God's people were afflicted. If you know the history of Israel, you know this, that oftentimes they brought judgment upon themselves. They constantly turned away from serving God and served idols. They constantly set up altars to other gods. They constantly disobeyed his law, and God brought judgment upon them. God always preserved, though. He always planned to. He preserved a remnant, a people of his own possession and choosing. He had promised that he would one day restore his people. And here, he reminds them of that plan to do just that. He says, listen, I have no plans of seeing you annihilated from the earth. You see, God must destroy Assyria because of his great love, yes, for his own glory, but yes, also for his people. And here he says, listen, there's going to be liberation and freedom. I'm going to burst your bonds. But I think it's helpful to pause for a minute and just understand that they had been living again under the oppression of this people, the Assyrians, for a hundred years. No wonder they were starting to question whether or not God was going to come to their rescue. No wonder they needed this incredible encouragement at this incredible moment in their lives and in the history of the nation. They had lived under the oppression and still trusted in God up to this point. What's, what's really interesting to me is that there's this strange notion amongst Christians and churches that believing in Jesus means having a trouble-free life. There are many who have embraced a um, self-help-styled Christianity, you know, a, a power of positive thinking mentality. They embrace a message that can be found in, in any secular, um, positivity, self-help kind of a book. And you see, the book of, of Nahum reminds us that this, this kind of idea of the Christian life is foreign from the Word of God. The book of Nahum presumes, actually, that the people of God, especially God's people, will have hard times in this world. Now, if you're a Christian, I, I know what maybe you want to protest with. You're like, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a child of the king, right? Like, but I'm a child of the king. I'm a king's kid. And to that, the Bible answers a definitive yes and amen. That's the awesome news. But you need to consider what you're saying when you say, I'm a child of the king. I'm one of the king's kids. Yes, you are, but living in a world that hates your father, right? They hate your father, and the world is living in total rebellion against his rule. So if you really are his kid, hard times will come. You can actually be assured of that. You can be guaranteed that. This is exactly what the New Testament teaches. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a part of the people of God, guess what? Trouble and tribulation are coming your way. And the more godly you are, the more righteous you are, the more faithful you are, the more the world will hate you for it. The promise of God for us is not that life will be easy but that we will never be left alone. That God is actually still for us, even though life is so hard, even though we're bearing up under injustice, even though we're suffering for the sake of Christ. Listen, the hope is this. It's not that God is just gonna remove your trouble and your circumstance. It's that God says, listen, you're not alone. I am with you through this. You can lean on me. You can find hope and refuge and satisfaction in me. 
This is why, by the way, so much of the New Testament presents the Christian hope as a future hope. Do you realize that? We have a present hope, but our present hope is anchored in our future hope. Remember, this is a prophecy, right? The Syrians are still ruling here. They're still dominating the people of God. And their eventual fall isn't for another 30 to 40 years. And God is saying, don't worry. I'm going to make sure they pay. I'm going to rescue you. I've got you in my hands. Right? The New Testament, you come along and you read passages on hope. And it's always future oriented. Oftentimes, it's otherworldly, isn't it? Hey, this world's not your home, right? Yes, it's hard. Yes, you're suffering. Yes, you're struggling. Yes, it's not perfect. Yes, it's broken. Yes, you're broken. But there is a day coming where I will come and put an end to all the pain and suffering. Amen? Verse 14, he gets back to Nineveh, and look what he says. He says, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Here we see the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is a worship disorder. They refuse to worship the one true living God. They had made idols. They had worshiped what were, in fact, not gods. And God comes along and says, listen, I'm going to take you and your gods and I'm going to throw them in the trash heap. I will level your temples and your so-called gods because I have a plan to preserve and protect and save my people. And look at the hope that comes in verse 15. This verse should sound so familiar to you. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Isaiah says something similar to this, this idea of upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings the good news. Paul picks up on both Isaiah and what Nahum says here in Romans chapter 10. You know how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? The one who brings the good news in the ancient world is a messenger. He is coming back from the battle. Remember, you know, they didn't have phones. They couldn't call and say, hey, guess what? Guess what? We won the battle. Instead, they'd send a messenger who would run back to the village and he would get upon a mountain or or a high hill and he would shout out to the inhabitants of the city, a victory is ours. We have won the battle. We are saved. Paul brings this imagery forward in the New Testament and he applies it to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Our great enemy, Satan, has been defeated by our savior, Jesus Christ. God has indeed dealt with our enemy and protected and preserved his people. And now, listen, those who are saved, you and me, the church of Jesus Christ, we are the messengers who are called to have beautiful feet because we run to the mountaintops and we shout the good news that there is salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. The enemy has been defeated. The kings and kingdoms of this world represent satanic power and rebellion. All through the Bible, we see this. There has been an ongoing spiritual battle since the Garden of Eden that is not yet resolved. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised. 
He would save his people by judging his enemy. What's so interesting is that as we look at the word of God, Satan surely had a plan. He had a plan to destroy the promised one. But 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 says this, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Satan thought he would win the battle. Satan thought he could take out God's anointed. And in the end, his plan was only a part of God's broader plan, God's greater plan, to protect and preserve his people. God's plan always triumphs over the enemy's plan, and we can trust him because we see in this that our God is truly for us. The plan of God requires it. And thirdly, notice this, the promise of God guarantees it. The promise of God guarantees it. Now, in the last two chapters, it's heavy judgment, so we'll just kind of read through these chapters fairly quickly and touch a little bit upon them. But notice what it says at the beginning. God explains and he describes exactly what he's going to do to the Assyrians with no uncertain terms. In fact, it's as if it's already happened. Remember, we still got decades to come before this actually takes place. Here's what he says. The scatterer, that's God, has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. He paints the battle scene. The shield of his mighty men, this is the Assyrians, is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the square. Sorry, this is the Babylonians that are going to be invading Assyria. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. He is describing just full-on destruction of the city. God would use the Babylonians to come and do this, a joint partnership with some of the other powers of the world. The defeat and the plunder is great. Now, this is so staggering because of how great this city is in the ancient world. It's hard to actually process how great this city is. Assyria was a a mighty world superpower. They were the dominant power of the day. Its size, its power, its strength were legendary. To give you a sense of this, just consider this for a moment. Its walls were a good picture of this magnificence. They had two series of walls kind of stacked all the way around the city, stacked side by side uh, a little bit of area between each of these walls. It ran for miles and miles around the perimeter of the city. The inner wall was about 100 feet high. It was broad enough for three chariots to to race abreast. On the outside of the two sets of walls was a moat that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. The Tigris and uh, other smaller rivers that were surrounding Nineveh made the city appear like it was impregnable, like it was invincible. It was a massive, powerful city, and they had conquered city after city after city, and they had described, listen, lots of ancient literature um, has records of them describing their defeat and utter destruction of every other major world power of the time. The the atrocities, the wickedness, the bodies piled up. They believed they were invincible. 
And yet the invaders are at the gates in this moment. God is describing this reality for them. The invaders are at the gates of this proud city. Soon they would be wreaking havoc within its walls. In verses 6 through 9, listen, they've even reached the royal palace. The river gates are opened and the palace melts away, verse 6 says. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. It is more than likely, and archaeologists believe this to be the case, that um, the enemies that surrounded this city actually diverted the waters of the Tigris River and the surrounding rivers to actually begin to flood the city itself, much in the same way that Assyria did to other massive cities. Assyria had taken countless cities into exile, and now it was their turn. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. Look at verse 10, desolation, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? It is widely recognized that the Assyrians prized lions. They had lion games parks, they hunted them, they considered themselves lions, they used the lion as a symbol for their power over other nations, and here you can and hear God mocking them, can't you? Where's the lions now? Let's hear you roar. Where's your strength? Where's your power? The lion, verse 12, tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. You have caused destruction like a lion, and now I will come upon you like a lion. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Utterly destroyed. Why? Because of their great sin and wickedness. They have been ruthless and cruel, like a lion. They thought themselves the king of the jungle. Who can stop us? This was their attitude. Who can stop us? Isn't it interesting that in 1 Peter chapter 5, Satan is spoken of as a roaring lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour? You know, it often feels like we're in the teeth of the enemy, like his fangs have sunk in deep in our lives. We feel weak and overpowered. We're wondering if we can hold on any longer. God comes along maybe to these people who are just, just barely holding on, and he says, hey, you can keep holding on. I have made promises to you, and I am guaranteeing them by my own name and character. You know, the question that kind of comes out of this text is this, in times of trouble and times of struggle, who do you trust? Not just what do you worship, but who do you trust? Because ultimately, worship is, is based upon a relationship of faith and trust. Do you rely on God, or do you rely on some other power? Do, do you rely, listen, part of, part of the reason this is written at this point in time is because 
God is trying to protect his people from capitulating, from turning and relying upon the superpowers of the world to fight their battles. Instead, he's saying, he's saying, listen, you don't need to rely on the world. You need to rely on the God who is above the world. You need to turn and trust me. You know, in our moments of weakness, we can be tempted towards the promises of sin and Satan. We can trust them instead of trusting the pleasures of God. We can believe that they're the things that are going to satisfy. They're actually what I need. They're the things I must turn to and embrace if I'm going to survive a one more minute, one more day, one more week in this life, in this relationship, in this job, with these kids. <laughs> And God is saying, there's no substitute for me, okay? There's no substitute for, none of those things can provide the power that I can provide. None of those things can do what I can do. All those things will ultimately be your destruction and demise. They will destroy you, but I will protect and preserve you. I promise you that. I love what Psalm 121 says. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see, the call here is don't quit to God's people. Don't quit. Don't give in. Fight the good fight of faith, right? And to the unbeliever, if I can just maybe speak to you for a moment, if you're here and you've walked in these doors and you're hearing this heavy message of judgment, you're like, man, this is ridiculous. Can I, first of all, thank you for being here. Again, like we just, we're so grateful that you would come into this church and that you would sit under God's word and we believe God is actually speaking to you right now like he's speaking to all of us, but he's speaking to you maybe in a very specific way. You see, right now, the question you need to wrestle with is not simply, is God for me, but am I against God? Am I against God? And the answer biblically, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, is yes. You're not just, you know, respectfully disagreeing with God or respectfully rejecting God, although it may appear that way. You are actually defiantly resisting God in your life. You have chosen, listen, you have chosen to uh, tell God, I don't want you and I don't need you. I will not accept you. I will not embrace you. And can I just ask you, um, what might change in your life if you acknowledge that there is a God who is sovereign over all creation? That there is a creator right now who is worthy of your worship and praise, but that you have willingly resisted and rejected, again, even if you've done so respectfully or politely, what would change if you believed right now what the Bible actually says? If you believed that this was true, that there is a God who is creator above all and that you are a sinner who is deserving of wrath and judgment from God. And that one day you will stand before this God and you will actually give an account like the Assyrians here are being told, you're gonna give an account to God. What would change in your life right now if you believe this to be true, that there is a God who sees all, who knows all, and he actually promises to punish all? And that is guaranteed. And though you may not see it right now, you will experience it one day to come. Where do you stand before God today? Are you for God or are you against God? Is God for you? Because if he is not for you, listen, you have to hear this, he is against you. The good news is, is you can be for him and he can be for you because lastly, the power of God accomplishes it. Like, how do I do this? The power of God accomplishes both judgment and salvation. He is the one who gives what is deserved, and he is the one who gives mercy to those who seek it. 
Chapter 3, he says this, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Again, he just carries on this theme of judgment and wrath. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Listen, you want to choose sin, you are inviting the judgment of God. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Here God pronounces a final woe upon the city. It's all about to crumble, and there's nothing you can do about it, he says. He says in verse 8, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. You know what he's doing? He's drawing in some recent history. He's reminding them of what they know to be true. Hey, hey, world powers went before you and they fell and crumbled just like you will. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Every nation that has resisted God, every people that has resisted God ends up the same, broken and destroyed, rightly suffering judgment and wrath from God. Misplaced trust will be the demise and destruction of many. And they trusted in themselves and their own strength. You know what's really interesting? Verse 11, just note that again, it says this, you will go into hiding. That could also be translated, you will be hidden. Many commentators have understood Nahum to be prophesying the total destruction and disappearance of Nineveh from history. What's really fascinating is that even the location of the ancient city was unknown until about 1850. This massive city appeared to have never existed before 1850. In fact, it was one of the accusations against the credibility of the Bible. This great city is talked about, and we can't find it anywhere. Obscure archaeologists identified ruins in the Iraqi desert as the site of ancient Nineveh in 1850. And what God is saying is, look, I have the potential and the power to wipe you off the face of the earth so that you will not be remembered any longer. And finally, he says, draw water for the siege. 
Verse 14, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. You know what he's saying? Prepare yourselves, go get yourselves ready. So much irony here. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Look at this. Look at how much stock they put in themselves. And look at what he's saying to them. Your power is nothing compared to mine. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. Get as many people as you can. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. I mean, you can accumulate all the resources you want in this battle. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. I will scatter all of the most important, powerful people amongst you. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. When the judgment of God comes, there is nothing you can do. You have no power over God and over his judgment and wrath. In the end, they will be punished, scattered, and forgotten. Believing they were strong, they will be completely destroyed. Interestingly, in 2014, Islamic militants seized a mazul. I don't know if you remember that. It's the city in Iraq, which is modern-day Nineveh. Here in this place, ISIS started the deliberate destruction of monuments. It was all over the news. And they destroyed a mosque that was dedicated to the prophet of Jonah inside the walls of Nineveh. What was known as their uh, scorched earth policy, this is the policy of ISIS, was a psychological warfare that was intended to give the appearance that they were in control and to make onlookers feel powerless. This is the foolishness of sin. That we believe we're the ones in control. We believe we're the ones with the power. And ultimately, we believe we're the ones who can save ourselves. And as we close and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, let me just remind you of a phrase that sticks out over and over. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, The scatterer, that is God, has come up against you. In chapter 2.13, it says, Behold, I am against you. In chapter 3, verse 5, again, God says, Behold, I am against you. There is nothing more terrifying than this reality. To know that God is against you should cause terror and panic. Imagine what it would be like to stand before God and hear him say these words, I am against you. And in this little book, God notifies Assyria that their time has run out. God's patience with their sinful ways and rebellion has ended. Their self-imagined invincibility and power will be exposed as fraudulent. They will be justly punished and destroyed, and God's people will be saved because God's power will accomplish it. God's people would not finally be left in the power of God's enemies. God's people are always and only saved through judgment. Judgment. 